We are uh, going to pick up in Matthew 27, verse 27. Uh, by way of reminder, Jesus has already been arrested and tried before Pilate. And at the insistence of the Jews, uh, the Romans have sentenced him to death. And this is what we read next. Then the governors, or Pilate's soldiers, took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt before him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. They were offer, they, there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gold, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it again in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From midnight arrest to trial to the brutality of the cross. Nails are driven through his wrists and his feet. Some of the most sensitive nerves in the body. And Jesus, bloodied and bruised, is lifted up, naked and shamed, for the world to see. If there is a more brutal and humiliating form of execution, I am not aware of it. His back has already been stripped of its skin. Bleeding and raw, Jesus now struggles to stay conscious as blood drains from his body. 
because of the way that victims would, would hang on the cross, it was difficult for air to get into their, their lungs. They would asphyxiate. And so in order to take a single breath, Jesus now has to push up on the nail driven into his feet, scraping his back along the wooden cross in order to get high enough to take a breath. He then exhales and sinks back down, beginning to slowly suffocate again before pushing himself back up and repeating the process. And every time he does, the nail slides further up his feet. The cross is excruciating torture. In fact, the word excruciating was invented to describe crucifixion. And the obvious question of any onlooker is why? Why? What's he doing there? To the Romans, he is a convicted criminal. To the Jews, he is a failed Messiah, a false teacher, a blasphemer, and so they hurl insults at him. Having cut at his body, they now cut with their words. They unleash their bitterness, their anger, their disappointment upon him. The Jews think they know why he's there hanging desperate and shamed. The Romans think they know why he's there. Another sacrifice for the glory of empire. But only through the scriptures do we learn the real reason why Jesus hangs there in unfathomable agony. No one takes my life from me, Jesus says. No one. But I lay it down of my own accord. Willingly. Jesus is not there because the Jews or the Romans wanted him there. Jesus is there because he placed himself there. Why was this necessary? I think that's one of the questions that our culture is asking. What is Jesus doing there? And why was it necessary? And the answer is rooted in two things. God's love and God's holiness. First, a word on God's holiness. 
our God is a consuming fire. He is completely holy, completely pure, completely righteous, completely just, completely other. And as a result, he is antagonized by evil. It provokes him to wrath. It's like an allergic reaction against evil. God feels about evil the way that half of you feel about gluten. I am incompatible with that. I cannot digest that. I am allergic to that. That's what God's wrath is. It's this allergic reaction against evil. Human beings, more often than not, are indifferent to sin. We are indifferent to evil. God, on the other hand, cannot be indifferent to sin. He cannot be indifferent to evil. It would be a compromise of his character. He would be false unto himself. John Stott says it this way. He says, God's wrath is a continuous settled antagonism aroused only by evil and expressed in its condemnation. God is entirely free from animosity or vindictiveness. Indeed, he is sustained simultaneously with undiminished love for the offender. And we'll talk about that love in just a moment. But before we do, we have to grasp God's holiness. It is God's holiness that gives birth to God's wrath. If God was not holy, then sin would not antagonize him. But if God was not holy, then he wouldn't be God. The Bible speaks of the holiness of God through a variety of images. But one of the most relevant for our purposes this morning is that of light or fire. God's holiness is like a bright, blinding light, almost too pure to gaze on. His holiness is like a consuming fire. That, that, that shrivels, that swallows up whatever gets too close to it. In particular, those things which are set in opposition to God, the, the, the evil things of this world are consumable. They, they cannot get too close to God. And so there's a sense in which we approach God when we're in our sin we approach God uh, the, the way an ant might approach a bonfire. 
And I don't know if it's a West Coast thing or a Western world thing, but we tend to view God as pretty laid back, in my opinion, easygoing, flip-flops on the beach. Oh yeah, sin, whatever, bro, party on. But I think that's in part because we, we've lost our sense of the majesty of God, of the holiness of God. Asking God to set aside his majesty, to, to set aside his holiness, to set aside uh, the, the wrath that comes out of it, it can't be done. It's like asking fire to give up its heat. And God cannot cease to be God. There is something in God's perfect nature, in his essential moral being, which is provoked by evil, which is ignited by evil, and it proceeds from God until evil is consumed, purified. What is inside of God must come out. It must be uh, completed, finished, accomplished, spent. Only when Yahweh's anger is spent does it cease. And now we sense the gravity of the human problem. God has set out to save us, but he cannot contradict himself as he does. How then can God express his holiness without consuming us and his love without simply condoning our sins? How can God satisfy his holy love? There's a struggle between what Yahweh ought to do because of his righteousness and his perfection and what he cannot do because of his love. And so the cross of Christ becomes this event in which God makes known his holiness and his love at the exact same time. Simultaneously in one event in an absolute manner. How can he save us and satisfy himself at the same time? And the answer is that he chose to sacrifice or substitute himself for us. We're staring into the mystery now. The mystery of the cross. And as we stare into that mystery, as we stare into that beauty, 
I want us to marvel in the fact that God's holiness and God's love are being expressed equally, infinitely, simultaneously. But the other thing that I want us to notice before we close is the role of the Father and the Son. Jesus is hanging on the cross now, suffering in our place for our sins. The Jews think it was the Jews. The Romans think it was the Romans. But Jesus knows this is the reason that I've come. It has been for this moment, for this event, he suffers unthinkable agony of body and soul for us. Any idea what the Father is doing in this moment? How great the pain of searing loss. The Father, what? Turns his face away. And on that cross, as Jesus died, the what? The wrath of God was satisfied. You put a couple of those together, and the image that I've always carried in my mind was one of a cold and distant father venting his wrath on the sun, turning his face away. And so we say, oh, of course, of course the cross was a display of the love of God and the wrath of God because we see the love of the Son and the wrath of the Father. Are you with me? But before we close, I want to provide one more lens through which we might view the Father. If you have a Bible or, or Bible app, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles all the way back toward the beginning. Genesis 22, verse 1. Genesis 22. God chooses a man named Abraham as the starting point for his redemptive plan, uh, the one through whom Christ will eventually come. And Abraham takes a series of incredible leaps of faith at God's calling. But none of them is as great as this. In his late age, uh, Abraham and his wife Sarah have a child. They only have one child together, uh, a son, the one through whom God's promises were to be fulfilled. But then God poses to Abraham the ultimate test. This is Genesis 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. God said to Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, 
and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Can you imagine? I have three sons at home. This is uh, Moses, Eli, and Caleb. And if you're wondering why they're much tanner and handsomer than I am, it's because my wife is from Honduras. But I cannot fathom what Abraham is going through right now. The, the intensity, the heartache, to take this person that you love as much as anything in the world, who's actually looking to you for love, for protection, for leadership, and to sacrifice them. I think anyone can appreciate the, the heartache of this moment. But those of you who are parents might have some unique insight into Abraham's experience. It's absolutely devastating. But in faith and in love, Abraham is going to push forward. This is verse three. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac, when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, which is a lot of wood, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son, Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Now pause for a moment because there's something that's, that's not clear or explicit in the text that I want to draw out. How old is Abraham in this moment? Any guesses? Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. And most scholars believe it's been 18 to 20 years since Isaac was born, which means that Isaac is 18 uh, and his father Abraham is 118. Now let me ask you this, who is stronger? Isaac, by far. In fact, he's strong enough to carry a large amount of wood on his back up a mountain. 
and he goes willingly with his father. Verse 9. When they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Two things that I want you to see here. The first is the relationship between the father and the son. Isaac goes willingly up the mountain. Isaac willingly allows himself to be bound. He willingly lays himself down to be the sacrifice. No one takes his life from him. He lays it down of his own accord. Why? Because he trusts his father. And as Abraham raises up the knife, he's not looking down on a helpless little boy that was bound by force. He's looking into the eyes of his adult son who is willingly giving himself up as a sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, this is the cross. It is father and son working together to accomplish the ultimate sacrifice. Can you imagine Abraham's agony? I can. As a father, I imagine that my agony would be as great as my son's. almost unbearable, tears in his eyes as he raises up the knife. And yet as he does, God calls from heaven and stops him right there in that moment, as if to say, no, Abraham, that's not your job, it's mine. Let me do that. As Abraham walked up the mountain with his boy, in faith he told his son that God would provide the lamb for the sacrifice. But as they reached the top of the mountain, 
there's an interesting turn of events. God provides a ram, not a lamb. And then things get even more interesting because Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. Not the Lord just provided, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. It will be. This is forward-looking to a future time, to a future lamb. And 2,000 years later, the Jews had a different name for this mountain. They called it Golgotha, the place of the skull. It was the mountain on which the temple of the Lord was built, the very same mountain on which criminals were crucified. And 2,000 years later, father and son worked together to accomplish the unthinkable. And the father's heart broke as he walked with his son, his one and only son, the son he loves. And his son carried the wood for the sacrifice on his mutilated back, up the very mountain on which the Lord promised that he would provide. God became the very lamb that all had been waiting for in our place for our sin. In this, God expressed perfectly the wrath of both father and son. Their wrath, their reaction against evil was equal. And in the very same moment, the cross displays their great love for all those who were bound in sin equal love of both the Son and the Father. The cross is not the place where Jesus persuaded an angry God to forgive us, nor is it the place where an angry father punished his innocent son God is not reluctant to suffer. He is not reluctant to love. He is not reluctant to forgive. In in fact, those things overflow from who the Father is. The initiative of the cross originates with God. The Father sends his Son, and they both work in perfect unity of love 
and sacrifice to save humanity from our sin. And even as Jesus cries out the, the statement of God forsakenness on the cross, even in this, Father and Son are absolutely united in love and self-sacrifice. Their hearts break as one. Their wills coincide perfectly in the self-sacrifice of love that costs both of them dearly. And I'm not the best listener in the world, uh, but when Evan asked me to, to come down and teach on this passage, I just did my best to get before God, and I said, God, is there anything in particular that you want Park Hill to hear through these verses? And I'm not the best listener, but the only thing I could discern was the Father's heart. I want them to know the Father's heart. When you look at the cross, you are seeing Father and Son sacrificing together for us. He sent his son, not withholding anything, his one and only son, the son he loves.